This podcast is brought to you by WEEDI, the preeminent national membership association for health IT guidance and collaboration. Recognized and trusted as a formal advisor to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, WEEDI is the leading authority on the use of health IT to efficiently improve health information exchange, enhance care quality, and reduce cost. To learn more about WEEDI member benefits and educational offerings, please visit our website, wedi.org. Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a WEEDI podcast. In conjunction with HL7, WEEDI recently held its fourth annual Health Equity Forum and Workshop at the American University in Washington, D.C. From that event, we'd like to present a special conversation with Dr. Vindel Washington, Chief Clinical Officer and Director of the Health Equity Center of Excellence with Verily Health Platforms. The conversation was moderated by Sagrin Moodley, Chief Innovation and Technology Officer with Antada. So I'm thrilled to be here. Look, when I look around the room, we think about how important this work is. I've uh, had the privilege to watch, uh, get a master class from so many in this room when I got to serve on Da Vinci and, uh, of course, in HL7 and and, uh, Gravity. So I, I can't thank you enough to give back. Please give back. This is the societal good and generational good. We have to we have to leave healthcare in a better place than we found it. And of course, you know, I had the privilege to to uh, get this opportunity to to connect with you, Dr. Washington, Health IT, former Health IT director at the ONC, Chief Medical Officer at the Blues in Louisiana. So were you there during Katrina, or was that? Post-Katrina. Post-Katrina. And of course, now uh, Chief Clinical Officer and the Director of the Health Equity Center of Excellence at Verily. So thank you for... Uh, Thanks for having me. So why don't we get into it? I, I, you know, I, I tried to understand a little bit about the, the Center of Excellence as a, as a concept, but it's not really a concept, right? I mean, can you touch a little bit about what is it, and how do you get the work done on the ground? And yeah, yeah, that's a great uh, question. I'll do a little bit of a background about they just uh, to level set a bit. So, Verily um, is formerly Google Life Sciences, so it's um, one of the bets, one of the alphabets that were made, um, 2013 timeframe, mostly focused on this idea of precision. Data, data usage, and providing platforms for both individuals and care providers, as well as some direct solutions. And so that's sort of the the company background. And I serve, as you stated, as the chief clinical officer. Um, But last year was also given the privilege to start the Health Equity Center of Excellence for the company. So we work across both research and care. And, you know, when we first start thinking about what should a health equity center do or be, there's a lot of thought about making sure that it was not either an appendage or a tax that was placed on the business, something that showed up at the very end of a, thank you, at the very end of a series of activities to say, no, you can't release this software, or no, this research program is not done well. So with that in mind, I would describe the way we've set up the Health Equity Center within Verily is as a cross-functional driver. And I think there are two things that were super important in that. I think if you're gonna do this work at all, I think it has to have sponsorship. And so um, from the design, we put it under a chief title at the company so that it would not get lost in some shuffle. 
And then the second, if you're going to be decentralized, we feel like you have to rely a fair bit on process. Um, you can't sort of show up on a haphazard way. They have to be sort of a, a real flow and a time and an expectation for input from the Health Equity Center to be felt by all the drivers within the company. The user experience team, the engineers, the product team all need to know when we're going to show up, how we're going to show up, and quite frankly, because it's sponsored by Chief Function, we should pay attention when we show up. And so I think that's just the concept of how to drive this as opposed to either an appendage or a stop sign at the end of a lot of development. And how do you, <clears throat> where do you start? So if, if we were thinking, I'm sure all of you are thinking, so this sounds, sounds like a logical thing to have, a center of excellence. But there's just so many things going on in any organization. Yeah. And how do you get traction? How, where do yeah. you start? Sponsorship, of course. But what are the other things yeah. you think you need to check the box on? I mean, I think that's a great, that's a great uh, framing question because I feel um, it's an area in the House of Medicine that can be pretty susceptible to um, a nice banner or a little bit of lip service. And the distance between the ideal and the activity can be pretty far. So one of the things that um, we really started from the beginning, there's not a, a, you know, sort of pull back the curtain a little bit, there's not a software development enterprise in the country that does not have some sort of product development life cycle and software development life cycle. Because at some point, engineers over here who are doing their ones and zeros need to connect with the product team that sort of has a vision and a business plan to go together. And that needs to be driven by folks like user design folks and user experience research folks that say the blue button goes here, the red button goes here, and if you put them in the opposite direction, nobody pushes the buttons. So, so that all takes a lot of orchestration and, and process. So one of the initial elements of developing a health equity center is when do we show up? When in this process development life cycle do you expect these inputs and how should those inputs come? So we've done things like um, use a, a participant advisory panel. So in addition to the user experience folks who um, uh, have done lots of design that you're very very familiar with, if you've done a look for a YouTube video over the last you know half hour, <laughs> uh, you know that that sort of work goes on. The construct of saying that you also want to do something like a participant advisory panel is an add to that and we need to know where that fits into the process and so what I would describe something like a participant advisory panel is to say where are the communities that are often left behind and how are we going to find representatives from those communities to advise us over a long period of time. So the industry is pretty full of what I would call um, your standard uh, focus group approach where I go to a group Maybe they're in Southeast D.C. Actually, I used to live in this area. I've heard that Southeast D.C. is no longer Southeast D.C., so I don't, I don't know exactly how to describe it. But go to a place that maybe you are having trouble getting people to engage. And you go there, you get folks, they give you two hours of their time. Often in the past, it would be uncompensated time. And then you make a design and you see them 18 months later when your software is developed. So for us, one of the constructs of a participant advisor panel is to say, as we're making course corrections using Agile through the development of software, where and when do I come across redirections or course corrections? And so we're talking um, from our initial pilot 12 weeks, but often we're on, on the design side, six months worth of engagement with a, a group of individuals over a period of time. Paying them for their time, why? Because their time should be respected and it's valuable. 
and having them be a part of the group. The second thing that I would tell you that was maybe even a surprise for us is that if you if you look at the advice and redirection we got in week one versus week 12, I will tell you that people are very much more um, insistent and vocal about the things that they think are important in week 12. And it's like any other relationship. It builds over some course of time. So in a two-hour focus group, you do not get what you would get on week 12 of a longitudinal engagement with a group of folks. And then if I can add one more piece that we're particularly interested in is there is a body of data science that allows us to balance these complex needs in the ecosystem that we use and come across every single day. So um, I um, discovered some new, new but not so new Saravon um, items from Spotify, um, and I love this tune she does called Tenderly. And I, then it recommends six other things that I might like in addition to the Saravon version of Tenderly. That is the standard uh, restless multi-arm bandit selection process. It's balancing, this is a data science concept that balances the recommendations based on what others have done in the past, what I might like next. We at Verilis have also developed an equitable restless multi-arm bandit where we actually raise up, for example, in the case of research, we, don't, we aren't just interested in time as a factor. We're interested in time, of course, we want studies to be conducted quickly, but we're also interested in cost and we're interested in equity. So the selections, the recommendations we have, the circles of learning that we do are different in that kind of structure. And so back to the point we were driving at is it has to come somewhere down from a slogan or a uh, ideal or an aspiration of health equity to what are the tactics and tools? What are the processes you're gonna change? What's the new science that you're gonna to bring to the table to drive an outcome that's different than you would have otherwise? So sponsorship is interesting because <clears throat> you need to show results, right? Absolutely. Um, how would you think about, how would you measure success on something like this? What would be the metrics? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, um, in all transparency, we also did a return on investment for the center. And we did that based on the fact that the ecosystem is changing. And there was nothing sort of better for this kind of approach in our industry than having um, biopharma companies produce products that CMS refuses to pay for because the research done on them was not equitable. That's a sort of a shot across the bow of what is the return of going fast to market but not having the desired outcome at the end of that. So I'll sort of put that as a stipulation that you have to have some focus on how your, um, your efforts drive. So measuring success though for us, I mean, you know, we have two product lines where it's pretty sort of direct. And so I would say we've talked about things here like the restless multi-arm bandit approach. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's really simplistically two things. If we're looking on the research side of the house, we think that the epidemiology of the disease should at least look like the study population. You may actually need to oversample if, for example, those populations you're concerned about are, uh, are tiny, that's just a math problem that you have sometimes. 
But the bottom line is, if we have produced a study and you've not reached that threshold, we know that we've missed the mark. I would say similarly on the care side, if we look at the folks that we care for, there's two, there are two cuts on this. Any digital solution where we're requiring people to sign up, we want to make sure that the people uh, that we're trying to serve sign up in proportion to their existence in the populations that we're caring for. That's number one. The second one, which I think is just as important and maybe more important is to say, are the outcomes that we achieve in the two populations or three populations that we're considering uh, on the same par or, or, or similar in terms of the, the final measurements? So, for example, we have a product that looks at, um, at uh, the great care for folks with diabetes, and so we have a few metrics around hemoglobin A1C control, around diabetic retinopathy screening, et cetera. If you segregate your populations, are your, are your results the same or different? And this goes back to one other slightly controversial concept. I'll just put it out on the table, which is this concept of equity. And so by design, equity does not mean equal. And sometimes when you have that first start of a conversation with an organization, you get off the rails relatively quickly. And that's to say, if I were to walk into this room and I would say, um, this is this, this world that I've made up. In this world that I've made up, unfortunately, I'll have to give you the diagnosis. You all have coronary artery disease and you all need an intervention. I'm sorry to bring you the news. Um, but in this hypothetical world, if I walked around and interviewed you and got some data and said, hey, you folks over here, you probably need an angioplasty. And you folks over here, you probably need open heart surgery. And you folks just need some diet, exercise, and some control, and some angina medications, et cetera. Everyone will walk out here and say, I probably got the care that I needed to get me to my best state of health. Somehow, when we sort of switch that a little bit and say, some folks over here need a ride to their appointment. Some folks over here are sort of short on food that is uh, healthy for them. Some folks over here need some more uh, investment in health literacy for the same condition. It makes people a little less, uh, less comfortable. But the construct is exactly the same. When we're talking about equity as a concept for delivery, in order to reach those uh, equitable outcomes we talked about, participation in trials to a similar uh, rate to the epidemiology of the disease, or the right outcomes um, that you're aiming for in populations that are different, because the populations are different, the interventions may need to be different as you deploy them. But that's our, that's our general mindset. And, and this is the last thing I'll say about this too, which is um, just because you don't win the first quarter, you can't quit the game. So the, so, the, so the construct of saying we tried this health equity thing once, look, we still are having trouble recruiting from communities that are tough to reach. You know what? It's a tough community to reach. You need to get back out there and give it another swing. So what we built into our construct here is what I would call just a degree of humility. We expect that some of the things that we're trying are not going to be successful, but we have a goal in mind, and we need to do cycles of learning and changes and in interventions in order to drive us to the goal we need. So, <clears throat> last mile, because I, 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 I mean, you're, you're, uh, couldn't agree more. You know, healthcare is local, and a lot of times it's a combination of big tech, yeah. but it's also small tech, right? <laughs> Getting someone to, to a doctor's visit, a, a ride share is, is not that sophisticated in terms of its technology deployment. But talk a little bit about it. I always call it being at the kitchen table. How do you get to be at the kitchen table of the patient 
that you're trying to, you know, um, uh, serve and ensure they get, get what they need. You talked about shift left. Yeah. By design, center of excellence, you can't just be downstream. It can't yeah. be a tax. You've got to, got to think about being early in the process. But how do you get to the last mile when healthcare is local? How do, how do you yeah. really solve for that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, one of the things we think deeply about is, um, like, our role in the ecosystem. So one of our pillars, we didn't sort of go a lot of, like, details. Some of it's boring, I'm sure. But some of the what we think about in terms of the equity center itself is around things like, is the team we're putting together diverse, for example? Are we um, training and recruiting for attributes that will help us drive this forward? I think we think about that a fair bit. There's another pillar about connecting to community. And the reason we have a pillar there is just a recognition that um, as a uh, big tech company, we need partners in the work. So we are not able to bridge in many instances, the last mile of care. So I'll give you one example that's a concrete example around how we populated our, um, our Health Equity Center of Excellence, um, the participant advisory panels, the longitudinal design panels. Um, so one of the things we recognized is that we could easily sort of um, uh, open up a, uh, uh, do, do a Google search and find out who is, uh, who is a community organizer in a community. Um, you know, we often talk about, uh, particularly in the black community, we talk about sort of touching churches and barbershops and, you know, like, we, like where are the places that you should go to reach people in communities? And it's very tempting because it's, a, it's the, first, um, um, the first outreach that you could do. But we purposely did not pick those individuals as participants. We picked those individuals to help us select participants. Why is that distance necessary and important. I will tell you, as a member of the community, if you find the pastor that has 4,000 congregants that show up at their church every Sunday, they are not the average participant that you want to have in your, they, they do not live the average life of the individual in the community. They are obviously have, often have the trust of that community, but they're not the average, living the average life in that community. You go and you find a person who's got the most successful barbershop with six chairs and like a waiting line outside, that person is also by definition extraordinary. So part of what we're thinking about in terms of how you populate, how do you aim for this whole concept of diversity by design? For us, an example was to talk to those folks who are trusted in those communities and have those people select and help us populate the participants for the study design. It's just a framework as we go back and try to do these, um, these uh, circles of how to do this work. Um, recognizing what we know and who we can touch and, and, and what's a bridge too far. So I will tell you one other quick story about like how we think about this outreach. Um, and you probably know some of this uh, if you've delved into any of the, the tech delivery space. There's a whole framework about developing trust within the technology, trust within the technology. And I don't have to talk to you much. You, everyone in this room knows um, sites that they would go to or they've gone to once or twice, sites that make them feel a little queasy, sites that they whip out their credit card and type in numbers, and sites that they don't. So there's a whole, trust me, trust me, there's a whole body of work. Uh, uh, and all the bets are aware of that body of work, of how you develop trust with your tech over time. I would say to you, though, 
what we're recognizing by our outreach to communities is that we're asking for the opportunity to be trusted. The opportunity to be trusted. So there are a lot of steps between your health plan saying you have a Verily product that you may use and you downloading, interacting with the product, et cetera. So part of this sort of design or this outreach, this coordination work uh, is aimed in that fashion. And, and, and companies like yours, folks who are actually um, trying to do these connections and bringing groups of folks to, to the table, this is our idea about how we should best approach that. We, we are recognizing our limitations, as it were, and where we should find partnerships. So we're very much engaged in that work. So we got, how can we not talk about AI? The alphabet <laughs> company, man. We got we to gotta bite that apple a little bit. Look, I was trying, I was on a plane and someone said, oh, what are you in technology? What do you, what do you think of AI? I said, look, for 50, 60 years, we had to talk in the language of computers. If you needed something, you needed an answer. For the first time, computers are talking in our language. That means you can be a chef and you could say, I have eggs, flour, milk, and custard, come up with a recipe that, that, that I could cook something here, right, in the next five minutes. Let's talk about what your view is, because, man, you guys are doing some really interesting things. And, the, and what my concern is, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, <laughs> an AI for everything. How do you get focused? What are your, some of the things, as you think about the center of excellence and you think about some of health equity and the things that we need to, go, to get after, what, where do you see AI? And probably don't have enough time in the day for this question, but yeah, well, yeah. punch it home for You're us. You're absolutely right. It's impossible to be in any way associated with Alphabet and not get an AI question. That's absolutely true. Uh, but I think your points are really, um, the way you framed it, I think is super important. So you know there's a whole tech adage that, um, as a, as a group of consumers, we often overestimate the effect of tech in the short term and underestimate the effect of tech over the long term. So I, I would say to you, we're probably in that sort of hype cycle. Um, we are absolutely engaged in using AI for our outreach. I would say that most of our strategies and our deployments around are the use of large language models. We had a paper that we published with UPenn about chatbots that we started in the COVID time frame. We do a lot of uh, work in terms of, of uh, sub-selecting and trying cycles of learning on what makes people more likely to download your app, to sort of engage, et cetera. That's absolutely um, AI sort of uh, front and center. Um, we also have a pretty big footprint in the um, uh, image recognition space. And so we're probably more than a decade in um, for uh, what we are now terming Stargazer. It's been a bunch of different things since it was with uh, Google Brain, but um, DeepMind. But uh, these are ways where you can take a pattern and the AI can recognize whether or not you have diabetic retinopathy or other changes, et cetera. So those things are not science fiction. Those are things that are very close. CMS now is actually allowing you to get paid for some of those readings that are done by AI. That's, that's here and now. I would say to you that the complexities, though, to the point you're making, the complexities of a, a full-on doctor-patient intervention, um, I think we are a cycle or two away from getting there. And I will tell you the one thing that we, and particularly in the center, we lean into a lot is, um, are we going to recreate bias that exists in the health ecosystem generally? Are we going to just recreate that within the AI space? 
So we have a, a, um, a both a, a cautionary tale and and one I think that helped us learn a fair bit. So we do have a watch um, that's uh, called a study watch. Not the our, we we have Fitbit as well, but we have a watch that's called Study Watch, which is basically specifically set up for um, a research grade output. Um, the first testing of the algorithms for Study Watch um, came from. Uh, Verily Engineers. Anybody care to guess the demographic of Verily Engineers? Um, <laughs> I'll give you one hint. They're about half my age. Uh, <laughs> and Flip-flops uh, in pajamas <laughs> on yeah. their computers. So if you're going to test a, an algorithm on a bunch of um, you know, 27-year-olds, um, then uh, you know from Silicon Valley, you can imagine that it may not be completely applicable to the the you know, the population at large. So after the initial studies that say, you know, does it actually measure if you fall or measure a tremor if you have Alzheimer's, uh, if you have a tremor, for example, then we had to do lots of additional testing that was more representative, et cetera. It requires a fair bit of discipline. It is very easy to poke your head out of the hallway and say, hey, I need six folks to walk down here. And then in our case, from an engineering perspective, they mostly are men that come down there, and they're mostly under 30. The construct of what you need to do um, from an AI is important. So let me put two more things. We might be at time. I'll put two things that I think are super important. One is the data itself. Data is not necessarily pure or in any way ready for algorithms to be to learn from in the first place. There are lots of studies that you've probably seen already that talk about um, data and bias that exists in data, whether it's data that um, allows you to pick a race or an ethnicity based on the terms used to, drive, to describe that patient, for example. Those studies have been done. Those are all things where my implicit bias creeps into, quote unquote, the sterile data uh, that exists. So one of the efforts across Alphabet is this idea of trying to make sure that the model, the data that feed the model, have data that is um, regulatory grade and as free of bias as we can get, which means a lot of internal testing and, and sort of challenging our own assumptions. And then the second is the one I sort of spent the most time on, which is if you're going to deploy AI algorithms, the algorithms themselves may be um, data. I used to say with some regularity, when people get really excited about AI, I would say it's it's math, not magic. So like the idea that whatever comes out the other side of an AI or machine learning algorithm, I think it's just not true. Those other tests and checks and balances have to be true. So um, I don't want to put, I think I put a, like a wet blanket at the end around AI. That's not where my, that's not where my stance is. I want to make sure that's clear. I actually think that AI can do great things. But I do think if you're going to deploy AI at scale, use with caution, and you need some structure or framework like, um, like our Health Equity Center. No, you don't need us, but you need some structure or framework that challenges some of the basic assumptions that come out of the tools that you're using. That's great. We have time. You can catch uh, Dr. Washington in between the breaks and the networking events, and I'm sure you'll have a lot of other questions for him on air. Talking about credit cards and trust, I have one-click shopping. My card is locked and loaded. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, back to you, Michael. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast, where the health IT community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. 
Find all our episodes, as well as information on our association, on our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us, and be safe.